Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening and welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm John Diaz, the editorial page editor for the San Francisco Chronicle and your moderator for tonight's program. Joining us this evening is Representative Adam Schiff, chair of the U.S. House Intelligence Committee. Adam has served in the U.S. House of Representatives since 2001. He's gained quite a bit of recognition, national recognition, for his role in the investigations into Russian interference in the 2016 election and allegations of obstruction of justice by the Trump White House. You may have stumbled upon him on cable news now and then. This, however, is hardly his only area of expertise. As chair of the House Intelligence Committee, Congressman Schiff has also dealing with escalating tensions with Iran, the threat of Russian involvement in the 2020 presidential election, the management of our southern border, and how to treat detainees, and much, much more. With recent events, including late-breaking developments today, the timing could not be better for his appearance here tonight at the Commonwealth Club. Please join me in giving a Commonwealth Club welcome to Congressman Adam Schiff. Thank you, John. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Wow. Wow. Wow, it's nice to be in San Francisco. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. What a treat to join you tonight. Uh, It is convention time, which means it's time for me to have laryngitis. So I'm going to be speaking tonight using my very best smooth jazz radio voice. Uh, But uh, what a treat to be with you, although I have to say there's nothing really going on. Um, So I don't have really anything to add. I think that that basically, that's basically it. Um, You know, I, I rarely give prepared speeches anymore because they're moot about an hour later. Uh... So I thought what I would do tonight instead uh, is just start out and make a few observations about what Bob Mueller had to say, uh, and then I really look forward to our conversation. Uh, So let me start with uh, Mr. Mueller. Um, I think there were a number of very important points that he made, and the first, I think, was very apparent from the fact that he began with this and he ended with this. Uh, and it was essentially, let's not forget about Russia here. Um, <laughs> Russia engaged in a systematic effort to interfere with our democratic affairs, to interfere with our election. Uh, and in all the debate that's going on, you could almost hear him saying about whether to impeach or not impeach, let's not forget that a foreign hostile power attacked our democracy, and what's more, may very well do so again. Uh, I would imagine there is frustration within the Mueller team that this central conclusion 
uh, and all the detail that he laid out in his report about how the Russians interfere through social media, through a hacking and dumping operation and other means, has gotten such little attention uh, that, in fact, the government has taken so little uh, by way of steps to protect us going forward. Uh, and that is all too tragically true. If this were a normal world and a normal administration and we had a normal president, uh, and I vaguely remember what that's like, um, the president would be sitting down with his cabinet and saying, Secretary of Defense, what are you doing to deter the Russians from further interference in 2020? Secretary of State, what have you told your Russian counterpart about how the sanctions they will see if they meddle with us again are like nothing they've seen before. Director of CIA, what are you hearing about plans and intentions by the Kremlin? Director of Homeland Security, what states are ready and what states are unprepared or what states are unwilling to make use of the tools that we have, the diagnostics, to help them prepare their voting systems? But these conversations are not going on. Because for any of those cabinet members to raise these issues, the president considers a threat to his legitimacy. And the president, of course, is not going to raise these issues himself. Quite the contrary. Once again, in another conversation with Vladimir Putin, the president called this whole thing a hoax. Now imagine you're the Kremlin hearing the president of the United States cover you this way. What message do you take from that? I think the message that Vladimir Putin walks away from that call with is, you can meddle again as long as you meddle on my side. You can count on my being too weak to call you out, and what's more, I may even be grateful. Uh, that may be the lesson that Vladimir Putin has walked away, and that is certainly not a lesson we want the Russians to have. So I think the first point that Bob Mueller wanted to get across is let's not forget what happened. Uh, let's prepare for the future. Uh, and that's why he began and he ended on Russia. The second point I think he made was don't listen to Bill Barr. <laughs> now, Bob Mueller is too much of a gentleman and an institutionalist to talk that way, so I will say it for him. But I think what he wanted to get across is that he felt he could not opine on whether the president should be indicted, that he could not indict a sitting president. And he sure as hell didn't expect someone to airdrop in uh, and do so for him uh, and exonerate the president when he found that he could not be exonerated. Uh, and I think he wanted to underscore that for the country, lest there be any confusion on that point, that if he thought the evidence supported exoneration, he would have said so, and he did not. And he did not expect someone who wrote a 19-page legal diatribe, even before he was familiar with the facts, to come in uh, and arrogate to himself that decision. He intended to leave the consequences to Congress. Now, I want to say uh, there are, are a few things that I don't agree with Bob Mueller on. Um, one of the more significant is his statement that to indict a sitting president is unconstitutional. Now, he said that... He said that 
uh, as if you could read in a certain article in the Constitution where it says, thou shalt not indict a sitting president. Of course, the Constitution doesn't say anything of the kind. All that Bob Mueller is going by is an opinion of certain lawyers who occupied a certain office of legal counsel at certain times in the past. That's it. A few lawyers who are not judges, who are not uh, Supreme Court interpreters of the Constitution, uh, who derived uh, their analysis of what is implied in the Constitution to reach that conclusion. Um, So when he says, quite matter-of-factly, it's unconstitutional, I think that grossly not only oversimplifies the matter, but I think it's the matter wrong. Uh, Indeed, during Watergate, when there was an OLC opinion to that effect, Leon Jaworski, the prosecutor then, in an argument over whether Spiro Agnew could be indicted, when the defense, when Agnew's defense made the point, you can't indict the vice president any more than you can indict the president, Jaworski said, you can indict the president. So Jaworski disagreed with the Office of Legal Counsel. So I think that OLC logic is flawed. Now, I will say this. If you accept the logic of the OLC opinion, it does follow, as Bob Mueller argued, that if you can't indict a sitting president because the president would not be able to clear their name, even if you abstained from the prosecution until they left office, the president would not be able to clear their name until they did leave office. It does follow that you shouldn't say, but for that policy, you would have indicted, because then you're doing the same thing. You're casting the same stigma. Now, from my point of view, one of the flaws in the OLC opinion is that where, by operation of the statute of limitations, a president can escape justice, that factor weighs much more heavily than what stigma might be applied by indicting a sitting president and delaying prosecution. Um, But nonetheless, if you follow the logic of the OLC opinion, it does lead you to that conclusion. Uh, And therefore, I find it completely disingenuous of Bill Barr to say, no, Mueller could have decided uh, and could have said the president should be indicted. Um, I guarantee you, had Bob Mueller come to Bill Barr and said, I'm going to announce that he should be indicted, he would have had a real fight on his hands. Uh, If Bill Barr believes that Bob Mueller was completely free to opine on whether the president should be indicted, even though he couldn't actually indict him, then I guess the Southern District of New York should be free to say the president should be indicted. But I won't hold your breath, I wouldn't hold your breath, expecting Bill Barr to be advocating the Southern District do that. Um, The other thing that uh, Bob Mueller said is that he wasn't going to tell Congress what to do about this, but he was leaving it to Congress. In the same way that Bob Mueller was not prepared to say whether the president should be indicted, he was not prepared to say whether the president should be impeached, and probably for much the same reason. Indeed, he did not even bring himself to use the word impeach. I think he felt that it was now up to Congress to decide what the proper course should be given the facts that he laid out in his report. Uh, And I'm sure there will be a few questions about 
what we should do from here, and I look forward to those. Finally, Bob Mueller said, I really don't want to testify. But he should. I think for this former Marine, there is one more service to undertake, and that is to testify before Congress to answer not just our questions, but your questions. I don't think it's sufficient to speak for 10 minutes and drop the microphone and say that I've said enough. Um, And I don't think it enough to come before Congress and say that I will merely recite from my report. He should answer questions. Uh, And there are a great many legitimate questions that he can answer. Now, I can understand why he would not want to answer, and nor do I think it should be required that he should have to answer hypothetical questions. Well, if there were no OLC opinion, would you have indicted the president? But far beyond that question, there are lots of other questions. On the Intelligence Committee, for example, we are deeply interested in how this began and what happened with the counterintelligence investigation. This began not as a criminal probe. It began as an investigation by the FBI into whether people around the president and then ultimately the president himself were compromised by a foreign power. Now that compromise could be criminal or it could be non-criminal. Moscow Trump Tower, that is the president's effort to make money in Russia to seek the Kremlin's help to make that money during the presidential campaign. The lies he told to the American people about that may not be criminal, but it is deeply compromising. Now, when this was found out about a year later after the fact in 2017 was found out that this deal went on far longer than we knew because Michael Cohen had lied to our committee, The president's response was characteristic. It's not a crime. And what's more, I might have lost that election. Why should I miss out on all those opportunities? I.e., why should I miss out on all that money? Well, if that's his attitude then, what is to say that his attitude today is not, I may lose re-election? Why should I miss out on making all that money? I'd be a damn fool to criticize Vladimir Putin, who holds the purse strings over that project. That is deeply compromising. Well, did the FBI learn of other compromise that the country should know about, whether it was criminal or not? Bob Mueller's charter, as he interpreted it, and he took a very narrow interpretation, was to look at the hacking and dumping operation to look at the social media operation uh, and determine whether they were criminal. It was not to report to the country about acts non-criminal that could be deeply compromising. And those are among the questions we should be asking to protect the country. And I would make this final appeal to Bob Mueller. If you want the country to understand your report... You need to talk about it. If you join the others like Don McCann that are refusing to testify, then the only story the American people may hear is the one Bill Barr wants to tell of a deep state coup conspiracy theory. 
that slanders the hardworking men and women of the FBI and the intelligence agencies that risks compromising our sources and methods in the service of an unethical president. So, Mr. Mueller, I think you have one more service to provide this country, and I hope you will testify. And I look forward to uh, the conversation tonight and uh, playing you some great jazz music. Thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you, Congressman. It seems like every time you come before our editorial board, I said, well, this is amazing timing. Well, here we are again. (laughs) Amazing timing. (laughs) Let me ask you, you mentioned the... uh, uh, Bob Mueller's statement the, the other day, his 10-minute statement, and, and even though he really didn't go any further than he had in the Mueller report, it seemed to almost give a jolt of adrenaline to the pro-impeachment forces on, uh, within the Democratic caucus. Do you think his statement was a game-changer, and, and how does it, what does it say about actually seeing his physical presence on TV versus reading this 448-page report? You know, I don't know whether it was a game changer. I don't know that it was a game changer on impeachment because, as you say, there really weren't a lot of new facts, maybe any new facts uh, in what he had to say. Um, And it may be that his very appearance uh, was an opportunity for those that had reached that point already to declare themselves uh, in favor of impeachment. Um, But he did underscore how... Seeing is believing, um, being able to hear from someone uh, about the work they did, the conclusions they reached, has an impact that the dry written word doesn't have. Um, it's one thing to read the report. It's another to have Don McGahn testify before the American people. The president asked me to fire Bob Mueller um, and then later asked me to lie about it. And this is what he said. Um, The president uh, and his duplicity should be exposed. Uh, The base and wrongful and obstructive conduct of his should be exposed. Uh, And in many ways, the Mueller report is a skeletal summary of the facts. Uh, And there are a great many uh, facts that uh, go well beyond those written pages. And the American people have a right to hear. Um, They ought to know who their president is. Uh, And it certainly would help guide us in deciding uh, whether uh, this man should be removed from office, whether those proceedings should be uh, initiated uh, regardless of the result in the Senate. We spoke a little bit backstage uh, uh, about Speaker Pelosi's really critical role in all of this. Um, and, and here she is trying to navigate. Uh, she, she wants to have a methodical investigation, as, as she's said many times. Before they begin impeachment, that you should really have an ironclad case against the president that will move people who otherwise might not be moved. Of course, there's some people who aren't going to be moved at all, as we know, with ours on their chest. Um, but what do you think of the way she's handling it? And, and how long do you think she can keep some of the more liberal uh, impeachment now uh, members at bay? 
You know, the speaker often remarks these days how the times have found us. Um, that is, uh, I think, um, so completely correct as to Nancy Pelosi. The times have found Nancy Pelosi. She is the... She is the absolute right woman for the hour. And I, I do not know anyone else in our caucus could, that could play the role that she is so well, uh, both in standing up to the president, in how she stands up to the president, uh, in how she keeps our caucus together. Now, the fact that we are, uh, we have members that are very pro-impeachment and very against impeachment and whatnot, keeping us together doesn't mean forcing us all to have the same view. Uh, it does mean that um, we keep our caucus organized, pulling together um, with our priorities uh, first and foremost and intact. I don't know anyone else who could do that at such a difficult and perilous moment. So uh, I think she's doing a, just a phenomenal job. In, in And in, in nobody is better than Nancy Pelosi at getting under the skin of this president. <laughs> that is true. He does, I mean, he and does I seem not to know what to do her with her. Good, that's probably brought her some goodwill in the caucus, is it not? Yes. No, I, I think there's uh, just um, great recognition and respect within the caucus, as there is in the country, for how she's handled this, how deftly she's handled the situation, and... Uh, how in every confrontation that she has with the president, her stature is only enhanced uh, and his is only diminished. You've drawn a lot of applause tonight. <laughs> uh, let me ask you um, uh, a, a subject that I raised in my column in the Sunday Chronicle a couple weeks ago, and that is the whole term being thrown around that we are in a constitutional crisis. And I asked some law professors and even gave some of my own views of, you know, there's no legal definition for a constitutional crisis, obviously, but are we in one? You know, I think we're on the threshold of one. Um, right now, you know, as between the different branches of government, uh, we have obviously a very strong confrontation between the presidency uh, and the Congress, but the courts are mediating. Um, and the courts are basically... Uh, handing the president's uh, head to him on a platter. Um, you know, in this obstructionism by the administration, uh, their utter refusal to have witnesses testify, provide documents to Congress, uh, the courts now, uh, two in a row last week, um, not only ruled against this uh, blanket obstructionism policy, but said that they didn't even raise serious legal questions for the court. Uh, you rarely see such dismissive language uh, by multiple judges. Um, and so, you know, it continues to proceed through the courts. If we get to the point where the, the litigation is done and the administration refuses nonetheless and ignores court order, then we are in a full-blown crisis. Because where do you go from there? Uh, I think that's the very definition of a crisis, when there is no clear path forward. Um, I do think that uh, we are already thinking about it. We're going to need to um, 
devise a method for a far quicker enforcement of Congress's oversight power. And um, you know, one method of doing that is to revive Congress's power of inherent contempt. Um, now, there, there, this uh, um, was a process that Congress used up until the 1930s, uh, in which if someone refused requests for documents or testimony, Congress would have them arrested. Uh, and and that uh, that that went up to the <laughs> that that went up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court uh, held in favor of the Congress and said, you know, inherent in Congress's power to do oversight is the power to enforce that oversight. Um, now that fell into disuse, uh, I think, in part because. It, too, was uh, at least partially reliant on the courts um, for ultimate enforcement. But um, I think we need to look at reviving that mechanism. And, well, it is very attractive, I know, to incarcerate these people. Um, <laughs> we may choose to opt for other incentives like uh, a daily fine until they comply. Um, this, would, uh, this would have the effect, and, and, you know, these things would also... Both of these mechanisms would, as a practical matter, as a practical matter, would still require court enforcement. But one of the advantages of approaching this with fines is people in the administration, and even more so people outside the administration, who refuse and are incurring a daily fine. Yes, it is true we would have to go to court to enforce and garnish their wages because we don't have the ability to do that on our own. But I don't know how many of them would be willing to bet their uh, worth that the president will have their back. Um, <laughs> because when the litigation is over, they will face the bill personally, not their agency, not their department, uh, not Donald Trump, but them. Uh, and this president has shown time and time again he cares about no one but himself. Uh, and so... That could be an effective mechanism uh, to uh, exact compliance. But there has not been serious talk on Capitol Hill of sending people to to the Justice Department or the White House where they have some fairly uh, (laughs) well-armed protectors to arrest people who refuse subpoenas, or have you? Well, we don't have the jail anymore in the Capitol um, to put them, (laughs) um, although we might have some volunteers to... uh, um, detain them uh, in their home. Um, <laughs> but uh, this is, you know, one of the reasons why I think the assessment of daily fines, $25,000 a day until you exact compliance, are more attractive. Um, that might be a sufficient uh, incentive for people to cooperate, and that may be far more pra- pragmatic a solution. I had promised the audience that we had some breaking news from today, and in fact, you sent a letter to the heads of the intelligence agencies basically warning them or requesting that, that, that they keep you up to speed as Intelligence Committee Chair on William Barr's investigation of the investigation. Obviously, you don't have a great deal of trust for the Attorney General of the United States. Uh, I don't. And, you know, I have to tell you, I think he's the second most dangerous man in the country. Um, they're... they're 
There is uh, a lot he has done in his short tenure in office that ought to be deeply alarming to all Americans. Um, First was the blatant misrepresentations of Bob Mueller's work. Um, Next was the fact that he came before the Congress and he lied. Uh, And this is the top law enforcement officer in the country. But I think most serious was when he told the Congress that the president at any time could have made the Mueller investigation go away if he thought it unfair. That is the statement from the attorney general, the top law enforcement officer in the country, that the president is above the law. Uh, and if this president can make, could have made the Mueller investigation go away, it stands to reason, he could make any one of those 14 cases that were referred to other prosecutorial offices similarly go away if he decides they're unfair. Um, and, of course, this is a president who thinks everything is unfair to him. Um, he is the number one victim in the world, apparently. Uh, and so that makes Barr a very dangerous man, and uh, it seems not a week goes by without further duplicity on his part. I don't know how many of you followed his interview uh, with CBS this week, but uh, he once again... Um, reiterated that there's nothing wrong with his referring to the initiation of this investigation as spying on the Trump campaign. Now, Bill Barr's a lot of things, but he is no fool. He understands exactly how charged that term is. Uh, And for him to suggest otherwise uh, is so completely disingenuous that I don't see how people at the Department of Justice can have any respect for this man. Uh, They understand what that term means. Uh, They understand what damage it does to their institution when he talks in such cavalier fashion uh, about spying on a presidential campaign. But, of course, it's quite intentional. And, uh, you know, if you look at his Fox interview the other day, um, he was asked, and this was on Fox, where the softballs don't get any softer. Um, (laughs) He was asked, uh, well... Doug McGann, Don McGahn uh, asked for Mueller to be fired. You know, how do you, how do you reconcile that? Um, and Barr said, no, he, he didn't ask him to be fired. He asked him to be removed. <laughs> oh, well, I guess that's okay then. Um, I mean, the, that the attorney general could, could engage in that kind of sophistry, um, it takes your breath away. Uh, it's as if Rudy Giuliani was appointed attorney general. Uh, (laughs) Except he's far more dangerous than Giuliani. He's far more dangerous than Giuliani. Um, He's much more capable uh, at his job, a much better dissembler than Giuliani. Uh, And that makes him very dangerous. You know, another another thing that uh, William Barr said in that interview is, when asked about whether the President Trump had been undermining American institutions, be it intelligence or whatever, he said, no, it's Democrats and the media that are undermining the uh, institutions by the way they're attacking the president. Speaking for myself, for the media, we're not. Are, is Congress undermining uh, American institutions? Yeah, you know, it wasn't Congress that said we should believe Putin over our intelligence agencies. Um, and... You know, this is, again, a perfect illustration. It's one thing when you have uh, a Kellyanne Conway making these kind of inane remarks. Um, 
but it's another when it's the Attorney General of the United States, and it's not so easily dismissed. Uh, I, th- I think the damage to our institutions is long-lasting, and, um, you know, this is a, an abject lesson for all of us, all of us who believed that this couldn't happen in this country, uh, that this was a problem that European countries had from time to time, and we would look at it and, f- and say to ourselves, thank God that could not happen here. Uh, the very first hearing that we did uh, in the Intelligence Committee when I became chair was on the rise of authoritarianism around the world. Uh, what's happening here is not happening in isolation. Um, there is a new ideological struggle going on. It's not between communism and capitalism. It's between democracy and representative government and autocracy. And we, uh, we should have a president who is championing democracy and human rights, but we have a president who is instead making common cause with autocrats, who's providing a role model. Um, I was just in the Philippines uh, a few days ago, and Duterte quotes our president in mocking his own press. They're fake. They're the enemy of the people. Erdogan does the same thing. Bashar al-Assad does the same thing. Uh, How sad and tragic when it is the autocrats around the world who quote our president and not the Democrats around the world. Um, This is a, a very perilous time, and part of what makes it so perilous is not just that we have an unethical president, uh, one with no moral compass, but that we have a Republican Party in Congress so completely unwilling to stand up to him in any way. We, we have a Republican leader in Kevin McCarthy from our state um, who uh, separates the starbursts that the president likes from the ones he doesn't like, um, who uh, could not be more obsequious, literally, um, uh, in the face of this attack on our institutions. And I am convinced that when this chapter of history is written, it will reserve its most damning words, uh, not just for this president, but for this Congress. Uh, that When... Uh, Our institutions were under assault, did nothing, or did worse, um, willingly went along uh, with the tearing down of our democracy. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. You will not be shocked, Congressman, that we have a number of questions about impeachment. Uh, Yes. And uh, a number of the questions uh, focus on the thinking among some Democrats that actually an impeachment process, given that it has zero chance of conviction in the Senate, at least unless things dramatically change, and I can't imagine that they would, that that could actually strengthen and embolden uh, President Trump going into the 2020 race. What do you think of that, uh, that 
juggling the the idea of you know you worry about losing the house you worry about a second trump term at the same time can a president really be left unaccountable for the some of the wrongdoing that's been identified here this is obviously a very important question about what's the right uh, course forward here and there's been a lot of debate about how an impeachment cuts politically. Uh, and it's perfectly, I think, appropriate to ask that question uh, as a member of the press. I don't think it's the question that we in Congress should be asking ourselves. Um, I think this is of such great moment for the country. We should be focused on, is this the right thing to do for the country, however it cuts politically? Um, And, you know, here, here is the dilemma. Um, there are those who argue, I think, with great force that if we don't impeach the president, regardless of what would happen in the Senate, it sends a message that this president's conduct um, is compatible with office, that it doesn't rise to the level of high crime and misdemeanor. Um, and I have to say that idea is deeply troubling to me and a great many people uh, who are strongly in favor of impeachment. Um, but I'm also troubled by the idea that at the end of this process lies an acquittal and an adjudication that this conduct is not an impeachable offense. And what does history say about that? Uh, when a future president engages in any conduct like this, do they point back to the acquittal of Donald Trump and say, this is not impeachable conduct? Um, and so it is, I think, a very difficult um, dilemma uh, now, I do think that, um, and I'm not there yet on impeachment, although I may get there, um, I do think that it's a mistake to think that things change dramatically once you announce you're in an impeachment proceeding in terms of the witnesses and the testimony that we get. If we declared tomorrow we were beginning an impeachment, it doesn't mean that Don McGahn suddenly says, okay, I'm coming. Uh, it doesn't mean the Justice Department says, finally, okay, we're opening the books. Um, there are impacts that it has uh, in court. I don't think it affects the administration's position. It may harden it, actually, against any cooperation. Um, in the courts on the issue of grand jury material, I think it strengthens the case somewhat. Uh, now, that grand jury exception provides that the material can be given to Congress preliminary to a judicial proceeding or as part of a judicial proceeding. Well, I think we are already preliminary to a judicial proceeding. Uh, and it seems to me it is insupportable for the Justice Department to argue in court that you can't indict a sitting president, you can only impeach one, but we're not going to give you the evidence you need until you actually decide you're going to impeach him. Um, so I think we win that case either way, but it is somewhat stronger in the context of an impeachment. Uh, an impeachment also, I think, um, has a certain weight to it that even if not a strictly legal matter would uh, incline the court to be more forward-leaning in terms of providing material to Congress. So there are some advantages in the litigation, but you still have to litigate the matter. So people shouldn't expect that if we do go down that road, you're going to see an immediate difference. Um, but uh, I'll tell you, you know, one of the things that may get me there, uh, and 
the administration does seem to be doing everything possible to push us in this direction. If we get to that constitutional crisis that I mentioned where the court has done its work, the orders have been given, and they are nonetheless ignored, uh, then I think we have to use every, um, every tool, every device, every tactic, regardless of outcome, um, to fight back. Uh, now, I may get there before that point, but um, I do think that we should press forward under either rubric, impeachment or oversight, uh, and fight to bring these witnesses before the American people, let them hear exactly what took place, um, and uh, and we, we're doing that now. We are winning in the courts, uh, and if that leads us to impeachment, it leads us to impeachment. Do you think um, an impeachment process would focus the American mind on what's going on in Washington in a way that it is not now? I mean, I hear from a lot of... Uh, politicians, including uh, Democrats, that when they go out to their districts that people aren't, impeachment is not really forefront in their mind. They're talking about jobs. They're talking about income inequality. They're talking about the tariffs. But once, once you have an impeachment process and you have televised hearings, will that change things? We look at, the, uh, at Watergate and how the Watergate hearings of 1973 Almost month by month, you see the chart of Nixon's approval rating going down. And remember, he had been reelected by a historic landslide. Do you think that would change, not in terms of substance, but in terms of public sentiment? You know, I have to say I'm a bit skeptical that um, even if we were completely successful through an impeachment or through oversight, bringing all these witnesses in, I am skeptical of how many minds will ultimately be changed. Um, We're such a polarized country right now, and there are a great many similarities between Watergate and today, although I think the president's conduct is far worse than anything we saw of Nixon during Watergate. Um, And I think the stakes are far higher here. We're not dealing with a bunch of bungling burglars. We're dealing with a foreign adversary that uh, attacked our democracy. But the most significant difference between then and now is not the tapes. The most significant difference between then and now is Fox News. Um, And I'll give you you a perfect illustration. When it was revealed during Watergate that there were tapes, and of course Nixon didn't want them provided to Congress, Nixon came up with a solution. Um, we'll give them to, and I can't remember if it was Eastland or Stennis, we'll give them to this very conservative Democratic senator from the South, and we'll have them, him listen to the tapes and tell the country what's on them. Um, <laughs> now, this senator was notoriously hard of hearing. Uh, and these tapes were quite staticky, and they're not of the, you know, they didn't have the capability of the, the noise reduction the way we do today. Um, Of course, it was an absurd suggestion, and it was immediately ridiculed by the press and everyone else, and it went nowhere, and the tapes were provided. If that suggestion was made by Donald Trump, on Fox News, they would be championing it as a brilliant idea. Uh, They would be saying the only reason that Democrats don't want this senator to listen to the tapes is they know he'll be fair and impartial. Um, There is a whole media ecosystem that will 
toe the president's line regardless of what emerges during these hearings. Uh, And so I have to say I am circumspect about our ability uh, to change minds, but but nonetheless we need to do our best to inform the public about who occupies 1600 Pennsylvania. Whether it ultimately changes enough minds, uh, I think that is our obligation, uh, but the sad reality is we're in a very different environment than we were during Watergate. There are no more Howard Bakers. Um, I'm, you know, uh, I have great respect for what Justin Amash did. There is no Justin Amash. Uh, there is no Justin Amash uh, in the Senate, but there are a lot of Lindsey Grahams. And, um, and so uh, we're in a very different place than we were during Watergate. Do you hear when you're in the elevator with some of your Republican colleagues? I mean, are they really saying what they're thinking, or are they saying different things to you about this president and everything that's going on when, when you're just talking privately? Uh, they will certainly express their deep misgivings in private, and I've had even senior Republicans pass me in the corridor and say in a hushed tone, keep doing what you're doing. Um, <laughs> but, but honestly... That, that's really a sad commentary. Um, well, it is. And, and frankly, I'm, I'm tired of the private misgivings. It's time for public courage. Um, it seems, here's a, a question. This is following up on you know, your, your observations about how polarized things are and how things are distorted, particularly by Fox News. Uh, one of our audience members asked, it seems that truth has been devalued. Can it recover? You know, that's a, that is a really important question, and I don't think we've ever seen such an assault on truth um, with a presidential spokesman who says that uh, they're entitled to their own alternate facts uh, and a presidential lawyer who says that truth isn't truth uh, and then whatever Sarah Huckabee Sanders does every day. Uh, No, it it is a full-out assault on the idea that there is such a thing as truth or objective fact. Uh, And I'll tell you, things are going to get worse before they get better. Um, We saw an illustration of this just within this week uh, with this doctored video of Nancy Pelosi. Um, And I think it was a terrible decision by Facebook not to take that down immediately. Uh, we are, we are uh, doing a hearing in the Intelligence Committee on deep fake technology, which is this technology that allows you to produce completely forged video or audio that is almost indistinguishable from the real. Uh, now, this, this video of the speaker was not a deep fake. It was what people call a cheap fake. Okay, so they took a real speech she gave and they changed the um, speed to make it look like she was slurring her words and was either not well or on alcohol or drugs or whatever. Uh, and the president pushed it out, and still is, on his uh, Twitter account. Um, that is the tip of the iceberg. And, of course, one of the many problems with this is that the damage is done when you see it. Because even if you're persuaded that it was a fraud... You'll never, psychologists will tell you, you'll never completely shed the negative impression it leaves with you. 
So tomorrow you could see a videotape um, of Joe Biden saying something he never said, or Kamala Harris, uh, or Beto O'Rourke, or anyone, um, and they would be powerless to completely dispel the impression it gives. And what's more, you might have great experts who could go before the public and say, when you analyze this video, you see how the speech pattern is not identical to their real speech. Uh, They don't blink the right number of times or any other number of giveaways. And frankly, the AI that produces these is in a race with the AI to detect these. Um, You could see how you would have credible, the best in the world experts pointing out how this videotape of this candidate for president is a forgery. uh, And on other channels, you would have other experts saying how it was all too obviously real. Um, The final problem with this is it means that things that are true can be put off as fake. And, of course, we have a president who does that every day. Uh, The president continues to claim that the Access Hollywood tape was a fake. Um, So what other real items and evidence may come to light that in a truth-free world you simply can dismiss? It's called the liar's dividend, and there will be no one will have a greater dividend than the president of the United States. Question, uh, audience question about, you, you mentioned uh, 2020, which, uh, and, and, and the, the question is, what is being done to ensure our 2020 election is not compromised by a foreign government? Is enough being done? Um, Enough is certainly not being done, and uh, you know I mentioned earlier what should be happening at the very top level, uh, a whole-of-government effort to defend and protect our country from foreign interference uh, in the next election. Um, nonetheless, there is good work being done individually at many of the agencies. Uh, I think within the intelligence community, they understand what a absolute priority this is, uh, and they are directing their resources to determining what our foreign adversaries uh, plan to do, what they may do, what they are doing. Uh, And so within the areas that we oversee in the Intel Committee, there is good work being done. Uh, I think within the states, on a state-by-state basis, uh, people like Alex Padilla are doing great work to protect the elections infrastructure. The problem is, though, in many other states that is not happening. Um, I think it is negligence on its face to have any electronic voting technology without a paper trail. Um, You know, Congress should pass, and we have tried, but we cannot overcome yet the Republican resistance to this, to mandate that states have a paper trail. Uh, It is not, I think, quite correct or accurate. In fact, I think it dangerous for a county official to take the position that we don't need a paper trail in our county, we don't need a paper trail in our state, that's up to us because it only affects their county or their state. It doesn't. It affects all of us. If a swing state is swung for the wrong reason, it doesn't just affect that state. It affects the future of this country. Um, And so there are good things being done. It is not nearly enough. Uh, and I think the, the fawning uh, admiration our president has over Putin only puts our country at greater risk. 
Um, but nonetheless, I think we are better prepared than we were in 2016. Michael Cohen, um, President Trump's former uh, fixer, lawyer, uh, in his testimony on Capitol Hill said that he had a real worry that if President uh, Trump were not to win in November 2020, that he just might not accept the result. Given that this country is so polarized and there's so many questions about the uh, efficacy of the, uh, of the electoral system, do you worry that we could be in a point on, in November 2020 after the election where one side is simply not going to accept it? I, th- I think that it is uh, all too easily foreseeable that if it's a close election that uh, President Trump would not accept the result if it went, went against him. Uh, I don't think that means that uh, he would call out the tanks. I think if he tried, uh, the military would have the good sense uh, to ignore that kind of unconstitutional order. But I do think it could nonetheless put the country in great disarray. Um, if the President of the United States uh, refused to concede uh, after losing an election. And all the Russians really need to do to sow havoc in this country is cause the result to be called into question, uh, cause Americans to feel that they can't rely on the results. Uh, That really would be another form of a constitutional crisis. Can you imagine if Bush v. Gore, uh, dangling chads, that that happened with a Donald Trump presidency? Um, what this country would look like. Uh, And so there is, I think, a a keen risk here. Uh, From my point of view, that just calls on us further to make sure this election is not close, that this president is repudiated in a massive way. Um, And, you know, I I guess I would... would, uh, underscore this further point, uh, no matter how the impeachment debate turns out, we have to accept the very great likelihood that there is no way um, except at the ballot box to remove this president. Uh, And all efforts must be made uh, to turn every last American out to vote. Uh, And... And as soon as we do... Our first step ought to be repeal all of these racially motivated disenfranchisement laws. Um, Make an end of gerrymandering, attack the problem of dark money, and restore some health to our democracy. Speaking of the uh, 2020 presidential election in the Democratic primary, right now there are two dozen candidates running, and I thought if the applause what, what went... What time is it? I, th- I thought if the... Uh, it's still early. I thought if the applause at your introduction went much longer, we'd be up to 25. <laughs> Somebody has to stay in the Congress. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let, me, let me ask you about the, the field. With that many candidates, it's obviously... I, I don't know how I should interpret it. Yay, he's not running. <laughs> <laughs> Given that many candidates in the field, and it's obviously going to take a while to sort itself out, uh, does that strengthen the Democrats' chances of beating President Trump, or is it going to sow some more divisions in the parties? Like, certainly the, the challenge that Bernie Sanders had uh, of Hillary Clinton 
2016 left some ill feelings that probably tamped down turnout in, in that race. What, what do you think? Are, are Democrats well served by having so many candidates? Well, you know, I, I can use this opportunity to declare my support uh, for any living adult 2020. <laughs> um, you know, I, I have, I have, I've often remarked, and I say this with not a hint of uh, exaggeration, you could literally pluck anyone off the street and they'd be a better president than Donald Trump. And... Um, and and, and the, reason, the reason I say that in all sincerity, and I'm, I really am not, this is not a joke, is if you chose any American at random, they would be a person of decency. They, they, they would be a person of patriotism and devotion to country. Uh, and if they didn't know something, they would find someone who did. Uh, and... So those qualities are completely missing uh, in this president. And so uh, whoever our nominee ends up being will have my full and complete support, every fiber of my being. And I hope that is true for all of us. Um, we, uh, we cannot afford to go into 2020 a house divided because the house is burning down around us. Uh, and, you know, I haven't made a decision about who to support yet. There are a great many friends and a great many uh, wonderful candidates running, but I am watching carefully to see how they are vetted, uh, and I think this process is going to be very important to see who's ready for prime time, who's not ready for prime time, who can stand up to this president, who can do so in an effective way, uh, who can speak to the public in a way that resonates, uh, who can speak to to the base of our party and energize them and motivate them, but who can also speak to those who voted for Barack Obama and then voted for Donald Trump and who feel that um, they have done everything they were supposed to do and the country seems to still be passing them by. Uh, and they're left with no secure retirement. Their children's future looks even less bright we need to speak to those people that we lost. Uh, and so I'm, I'm, I'm looking to someone who can do that. Uh, Barack Obama had that magnificent ability to excite and energize people, but also to win over people. And uh, I hope and pray that we find that right person uh, this time as well. What are the policy issues, the policy issues that you think can not only bring Democrats together, but to reach some of those voters who voted for Barack Obama and then turned around and voted for Donald Trump in 2016. What are the policy prescriptions? Well, I really think that um, a lot of the reason why where we are today, not just at home but abroad, is there are two revolutions that are going on simultaneously, either one of which would be hugely disruptive. There's an economic revolution going on, every bit as significant as the Industrial Revolution, uh, where through globalization and automation, millions of people are losing their jobs through no fault of their own. Um, millions are finding new jobs that pay worse than the jobs they had, that have no retirement and little health care, uh, which is deeply destabilizing. 
Uh, at the same time that this is going on at home and abroad, there's a revolution in how we get our information, uh, which is every bit as significant as the invention of the printing press, but we had centuries to get used to that. This is happening overnight, and that's the social media revolution in which lies travel far faster than truths. You put those two things together, it is hugely disruptive. Uh, and I think that, first and foremost, our candidate, our nominee, has to address those profound economic changes uh, with prescription for in a world in which you may no longer work for the same com company your whole life or even more than five years or sometimes even more than five hours. Um, how are we going to get our health care? How will it be truly portable and affordable? How are we going to have a secure retirement? Who's going to pay into that retirement? Uh, I gave a speech at Penn, and I got out of the speech, and I got into an Uber to go to the airport, and the woman driving the Uber said, uh, this is my lucky day. Uh, and before I got carried away with uh, it being because I was in her Uber, she said, um, I live near the airport, and I can make some extra money taking you to the airport. And uh, <laughs> I, she said, I just got off work, and I can make this extra money. And I said, you know, it's really interesting. You should put it that way because you didn't really just get off work. You just got off one work, and now you're starting a second work. And, and as I got out of her Uber, I remember thinking to myself, I don't know what her day job is, but I know the night job doesn't provide retirement or health care. And if her day job looks like her night job, then eventually she's screwed. Uh, and so we need to, I think, speak to the economic challenges that every American is facing. Uh, and not just for for this election, but for the, for the future. Um, this is a problem both parties need to confront, and neither has adequately. The, the solutions of the past are not going to be adequate to the challenges of the future. Uh, and, you know, people might say, well, the economy is good. It's good for half the country. But the other half of the country is just one expected, unexpected car problem, a health problem away from failure. Uh, and... Um, And these folks that, that have done everything they were supposed to do and are facing that uncertain future have every right to expect an answer. How are you going to make my life better? How are you going to make the life of our children better? Um, and ultimately that, I think, is what people are going to vote on uh, and what our candidate needs to speak to. Economic issues always loom largest in any American election. The proverbial question, are you better off than you were four years ago? But as a member of the, as chair of the Intelligence Committee, let me ask you about foreign policy. Is this nation safer and more secure than it was on January 20th, 2017, when Donald Trump was inaugurated? I'm trying to think if there's any, any corner of the earth, any way uh, that that would be true. Um, and I can't come up with anything. Uh, you know, the, the terrible tragedy is that our standing in the world has plummeted. Uh, I was in Munich for the National Security Conference, and the vice president spoke there. Uh, and he had certain applause lines written for him uh, as if he was at one of these MAGA rallies. Um, including, uh, thanks to Donald Trump, America's position in the world has never been better, uh, or something along those lines. And 
I can see why he had to say it. I assume the speech was written for him by friendly people in the White House, uh, only too happy to help. But why pause for applause you know is never going to come? But but in any event, uh, um, we got a vivid sense in talking with our allies just how they felt about America right now, which is, I think, mournful of what's happened to our country. Um, Desperate to see a return of the old America, uh, alarmed at their future as well as ours. We have a president now who loves the dictator of North Korea, Um, a person who uh, is starving his people, murdering his enemies, uh, often in cold blood, and sometimes family members. And sometimes family members. Um, and who is continuing with his nuclear and missile program. And that's all okay. And you know why it's okay? Because he either says nice things about Donald Trump or disparaging things about Joe Biden. I mean, that's not just pathetic. It's dangerous. Uh, you know, my, my reaction when I saw the, you know, that, that the, our fleet commander had to move the USS John McCain... Uh, because the president was so threatened by seeing the name of someone so so um, much better uh, in every way. Um, you know, at one point it's just appalling and pathetic, but at another level uh, just reinforces the idea that our adversaries have that if you appeal to that insecurity with flattery, you'll get everything you want. And so... North Korea becomes more and more dangerous every day. Our country becomes more and more powerless to deal with it. Uh, and, and the same, of course, is true in spades with Russia. Uh, and vis-a-vis the rising power on the globe of China, we're taking none of the steps that we ought to take to meet that rising challenge. Um, a lot of the problems that have been created during this presidency in terms of our national security and our standing in the world can be repaired quickly by another president. But some can't. Some things are irrevocable. Um, We don't get back the time we lost. Uh, As China marches forward and we slip back, we don't get back that time. Uh, And there are other even more dire consequences. The parents that lost their children Um, through this heinous policy of family separation will never be made whole. Um, That unforgivable um, damage can never be undone. Um, But uh, I I can't think of a single way that our country is safer than it was with no nuclear agreement with Iran and with the risk of war there greater than ever. Um... And uh, this is, you know, one of the many reasons why this has to be a four-year nightmare that ends on Election Day. Unfortunately, we've uh, reached the point where we have time for one more question. Just to your point to show that Fox News is not the only one that can throw a softball. Here's one from the audience. Congressman Schiff, why are you not running for president? (laughs) 
Uh, I would say because my wife won't let me, but she probably would. Uh, well, um, for better or worse, I think I'm in a pivotal position right now to make a difference uh, in the Congress. Um, and I, I feel a real sense of obligation uh, to do what I can um, with the position I have uh, in the Congress to protect our democracy when I think it's at its most vulnerable. Um, you know, I used to, when people asked me um, whether I enjoy my job, it was an easy answer. Enjoy is not the right word right now. Uh, I look forward to when I do enjoy it again, but it is... It is I think, deeply important. Um, and I think all of us right now have to ask ourselves at a time when the country needs us, what can we do in our public positions, our private life, our corporate life, our civic life? What can we contribute right now when the country really needs us? Because it desperately does. And what's more, the country's worth fighting for. Uh, you know, when, when, when people... Uh, when people get discouraged, you know, I try to remind them, it's not as if everyone who voted for Barack Obama just up and left the country. Um, <laughs> we're still here. Uh, and, and more than that, uh, I always come back to something Bill Clinton once said. There's nothing wrong in America that can't be cured by what's right in America. There's an awful lot right in this country that will see us through this uh, dark and turbulent time. Congressman Adam Schiff. Please join me in thanking the Congress. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so much. much. That was good. Thank you. 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 Great job. Good job. Thank you. I'm glad my voice held out. <laughs> Thank you.